Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. In this episode, we had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Shazir Karmali. Dr. Karmali is a bariatric and MIS surgeon at the Royal Alex Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. And we talked to him about post-bariatric complications and things that every general surgeon really should know how to manage if they see these patients uh, on call. In addition, we got to talk to him about some really interesting research that he's done uh, related to intracranial hypertension and finally closed off by talking about what it means to have a relationship with industry and doing research. We hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for, for joining us on Cold Steel, uh, Dr. Kromal. We know, uh, you know it's kind of a crazy time and everyone's quite, uh, quite busy dealing with, with all the issues that surround COVID. So um, thank you in advance. For, for viewers that are, I should say, uh, listeners that don't um, maybe know you as well as we do, um, tell us where you grew up, uh, what your training pathway was, and uh, maybe why you chose bariatrics at the end of the day. Yeah, sounds good, Chad. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate uh, being on the Cold Seal podcast today. So I was actually uh, raised uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, and I did my uh, medical school in Edmonton. Thereafter, I did my uh, residency at the University of Calgary. Uh, following that, um, I did uh, fellowship training at the uh, Baylor College of Medicine in uh, Houston, Texas. My fellowship was uh, focused on minimally invasive surgery as well as um, bariatric surgery. Um, thereafter, I've taken up uh, academic position at uh, the Royal Alexander Hospital, which is affiliated with the University of Alberta in uh, Edmonton. Um, as to why uh, bariatrics, um, so, you know, I, I didn't have too much exposure to uh, bariatrics during my medical school, uh, nor during my residency. It was more of an interest I had in minimally invasive and laparoscopic surgery, but as I entered my fellowship, I had an ability to really get immersed in a world of, you know, bariatric surgery, and it, it really fascinated me because it's one of the you know, first of all, as a surgical operation, it's, it's quite a, a challenging a laparoscopic operation. But more than that, the um, patient cohort was was really interesting because you're dealing with, you know, individuals who are suffering from severe obesity and a lot of the comorbidities associated with it. And you, you see the impact you can have by applying this tool called bariatric surgery and not only improving their health, but improving their quality of life, their quantity of life, and the most interesting thing is improvement of comorbidities. And as we know from you know major studies like the STAD-P trial, bariatric surgery, especially surgery like a gastric bypass, has been shown to uh, be a cure for uh, conditions like type two diabetes, which is which is amazing. You're using a surgical operation to treat a medical problem. So that's kind of what generated my interest in bariatric surgery and kind of keeps me going in that field currently. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's kind of neat, you know. Both uh, both you and Scott Gamora uh, have now been on the podcast, and we talked to Scott about surgical training and kind of the interesting uh, uh, way that we do that. But you know, both of you guys came out of a residency that really didn't have much bariatrics at all, and both of you guys have become such great national leaders. It's pretty awesome to see. Um, 
to that extent, then, when you look at the, or when we look at the Edmonton group from the outside, you guys have been really productive on the academic bariatric side. How have you done that, and how, how do you view that, and what makes you guys really honestly stand out from most of the other groups uh, in the country? Well, I think, I think the main thing, you know, you know in, in learning about bariatric surgery, and with most other surgical disciplines, you realize that, you know, evidence and, and publishing and, and really getting your name out there helps with, um, helps with recognition as well as, well as maintaining your association with other centers. So we really got immersed in this idea of the MBSQIP, which is um, equivalent to the NISQIP. And, and what it is, it's a, it's a cohort of bariatric surgical centers that work together to share outcomes, share data, share research in a common goal of providing high-quality care and management to our patients. So part of that care goal is obviously to uh, study our outcomes, study what we're doing, and, and use methods to improve our overall quality of care delivered. So in essence, by, by being involved in such a large consortium, it really drives us to not only provide good clinical care, but study our care, research our care, and publish what we do. So that's really what drives it, and, and I think everybody's bought into that idea, and this MBSQIP idea really propagated in the U.S., and it's starting to kind of grow in Canada now, so there's more and more centers that have gone on board to this MBSQIP idea, and as we hope as centers develop in Canada and really get integrated into that, they can add to the research engine, in Canada especially. That's awesome, uh, Dr. Kermali. Um, as uh, one of the R5s who supposedly is going to be writing his exam at some point, uh, yet to be defined, but at, at some point we are going to write that Royal College exam. I thought that would be really useful for us as well as for anyone who might have to deal with bariatric patients, uh, perhaps on call, etc., uh, to talk a little bit about um, some of the common things that you can expect from a bariatric patient in terms of complications. And maybe I thought it would be useful to just have you define the problem of obesity in Canada, as, as your group has written a lot about that. Um, like, how big of, the, of a problem is obesity in Canada, and um, to what extent is bariatric surgery really caught on in the country? So, I mean, obesity is an interesting condition because, you know, in the past, obesity was just seen as, you know, uh, a, a cosmetic, not necessarily a cosmetic problem, but people being overweight and just not looking good and just having some extra pounds. But as kind of evidence and research has developed, we realize that obesity itself and has been classified as a, as a chronic disease and especially severe obesity. So those are, that's the obesity that we tend to deal with. So those are individuals who have you know, body mass indices of over 40 or body mass indices of over 35 with obesity-related comorbidity. So these are the severely obese patients, and these severely obese patients really suffer. So a person who has severe obesity usually has about a 10 to 12-year reduction in overall life expectancy as compared to individuals who don't. And as I mentioned, severe obesity um, being a chronic disease is closely linked with other chronic diseases. So people who are severely obese aren't just obese. They're usually also type 2 diabetic, suffer from high blood pressure, high cholesterol, COPD, sleep apnea, the list goes on and on. So there's this big congregation of this chronic disease entity of severe obesity that's kind of evident and permeating, you know, nationally and internationally. Now, when we look at Canada itself, 
you know, so what what percent of the population would be considered to be severely obese? And there's different ranges in different provinces, but on an average in Canada, you know, it's probably around 25 to 30 percent of the population is considered to be on that severe obese spectrum, which is which is huge, right? Like that's a that's a large number of individuals who are suffering from this chronic disease condition, and. So because of that, you know, a lot of centers have developed to, to facilitate management of it. Now, bariatric surgery, when, I, when we talk about uh, management, is a tool, and it's a tool used to manage severe obesity. And, you know, how much bariatric surgery is being done? Well, interestingly, although 30% of the population is severely obese, probably only about 1.5 to 2% of those individuals actually go on to have bariatric surgery because there's an access problem too. There's, you know, when I look at countrywide, there's probably only around 15 bariatric surgeons offering bariatric surgery across the country. So there's obviously a supply and demand uh, imbalance going on right now. And what, you know, uh, it obviously bypass and sleeves are, are probably the most common operations, but um is is there anyone doing some of the other operations and and maybe you could actually describe the differences between you know let's say a a, a sleeve versus a bypass versus some of the other lesser known things like a duodenal switch or biliary pancreatic diversion hey, you bet so you know in terms of operations being done so you know uh in Canada there's probably uh three common operations being done the gastric bypass that's probably the, the commonest, the gastric sleeve, which is a close second. And then there's other operations, uh, variants of the duodenal switch or single anastomotic, single, single anastomotic duodenal uh, procedure. So those are the commonest three. In the past, there was an operation very commonly done called the adjustable gastric band. It's not really been done, being done anymore in Canada, but it's an important operation to know about because there's a lot of individuals who have issues or complications with that operation. In the U.S., our partners down south, interestingly enough, the commonest operation is actually the gastric sleeve, followed by the gastric bypass. Um, so I guess to your question, you know, just to go through the operations, um, I can just kind of go through each kind of in general in terms of, you know, what they look like, what they do, and then we can talk a bit more. So just uh, starting with... Um, just to get it, get it, get it, get it by, because I did mention is the adjustable gastric band. So this operation really became very popular, kind of in the uh, late 2000s, and really tapered off, you know, by 2010 to 2012. But there was a lot of adjustable gastric bands being done. What the adjustable gastric band is is it's um, a silastic band that is attached to a port, and it's kind of like a portacast. So when you fill that port with saline, the band, um, the band has a reservoir, and that reservoir gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And so what the operation did was that uh, surgeons placed this um, adjustable band in the upper portion of the stomach. And what it did was it created essentially a reservoir at the top of the stomach. So there was um, the band was sitting, so you got food coming down the esophagus, and before it filled the entire stomach, it filled as a reservoir above the band. And when it filled a reservoir above the band, 
what happened is that people who have this band in felt this kind of idea of fullness. So it's kind of fooling your body into a portion control reduction. So people are like, hey, you know, I'm eating this food and I can feel full on less food. So what happened is, for example, if somebody eats, you know, five cups of food to feel full, with the band in place, they're eating one and a half to two cups because it filled this reservoir first, and they're like, hey, I feel full, and, and that's what facilitated the weight loss. So that's how the band worked. The issue with it is that to really get the band to work, patients had to come in and keep having the band filled and adjusted to a point where you could reach this kind of green zone or a happy medium where you got that fullness. And the problem that came about is that it required a lot of effort to do it. A lot of patients didn't follow up. A lot of surgeons were just doing the band and, and losing patients to follow up and not really following the protocols that had to be followed. And so because of that, there was a high failure rate with the band. Right now, probably around 50 to 60% of patients who've had a band have now had it removed because it just didn't work. So that's the, that's the nuts and bolts of the mechanism of action of the, the gastric band. Again, not, not being done very frequently. Uh, in terms of the next kind of operation is probably in terms of, you know, and I'm doing it kind of by rungs of complexity. So the next one is probably the gastric sleeve. So the gastric sleeve uh, is an interesting operation. This operation probably started really picking up uh, interest kind of in 2006 to 2007. It was initially done as a, a staged operation to another operation, which I'll discuss in a little bit, called the biliopancreatic diversion duodenal switch. But what happened is what when patients had this initial operation called a gastric sleeve, um, a lot of patients started losing weight. So the surgeon said, hey, let's, let's think about doing this gastric sleeve as a standalone operation. So that's kind of where it developed. Now, what the gastric sleeve is, is it's, it's essentially a restrictive operation where surgeons um, use surgical staplers or other methods, and they, they work to decrease the reservoir size of the stomach. So, for instance, if somebody has a stomach, that's usually, I say, tell patients, you know, your stomach's probably the size of a small watermelon. What happens is that surgeons use surgical staplers or other techniques to, deep, to change the configuration and size of the stomach from a watermelon to probably the size of a large banana. And by doing that, by decreasing that reservoir size, what happens is that patients get that portion control reduction. So, same kind of idea they feel full on less food. So rather than eating four to five cups of food per meal, they can eat two to two and a half cups and feel that feeling of fullness. Um, in addition, there's some secondary effects that also happen with the gastric sleeve, which kind of came about with research. And people found that, you know, after the gastric sleeve, not only were people getting this kind of portion control reduction, they were also finding their hunger urge reduced for some reason. This wasn't seen with the band. And as research started developing, they found people found that people who have a gastric sleeve start noticing that their hormonal levels of a hormone called ghrelin have also diminished. And the reason for that is ghrelin is stored in your gastric fundus. And with the gastric sleeve, that gastric fundus is removed. So lo and behold, patients who have a gastric sleeve have lower ghrelin levels. And ghrelin is a hormone that drives hunger. So when you drop ghrelin levels, your hunger urge also diminishes. So it's kind of a dual effect. So it's very interesting. The gastric sleeve is a, is a good operation. It, it results in, in pretty uh, decent weight loss. We usually quote around a 50 to 55% excess weight loss with the gastric sleeve. So it's, it's pretty strong, pretty robust. The issues with the sleeve are that the stomach is a very pliable organ, and, and if patients don't follow appropriate dietary recommendations, that stomach can stretch back up. So there's probably around a 5% failure rate that we quote with the sleeve. 
And finally, the one concern with the sleeve is because we are reconfiguring the stomach, we're always concerned about um, you know, changing the orientation of the upper esophageal area or the angle of hiss or the gastric reflux mechanism. So some individuals who have a lot of reflux pre-existing can get worsening reflux after a sleeve. So that's always the one concern with the sleeve is gastric reflux. The, uh, the next operation uh, in terms of complexity is the gastric bypass. So the gastric bypass, you know, like I said, the sleeve has probably been done since 2007. I mean, the gastric bypass dates back to the 1960s when it was done as an operation. It's obviously changed in the way in which we do it, the fact that we do it laparoscopically now, but the idea and the philosophy of what it does and how it works remains the same. So with the uh, gastric bypass, um, a couple things, uh, couple things happen. So the first thing that happens is that when you look at the gastric bypass or a picture of it, you'll you'll see that there we form a little pouch, right? So we take the stomach and we form a pouch from the stomach using a stapler. So rather than food filling your entire stomach, it fills this pouch. So by filling the pouch and not filling your entire stomach, you get that same reservoir effect. You feel feel full on less food. So same, similar to the band, similar to the sleeve, they get that portion control reduction. The difference, though, with the gastric bypass is rather than having the food just enter into the rest of the stomach, we actually bring up a loop of small bowel called the jejunum, and we join it to that gastric pouch. And what happens is that the food travels down this loop of, the ju of jejunum for a variable distance, depending on centers, but usually on average about 100 to 125 centimeters, before it reaches the biliopancreatic secretion. So the reason this operation is called the gastric bypass is what we're doing is we're bypassing your food from seeing your biliopancreatic secretions. There's not a huge bypass of stomach or bowel from seeing food because really the only portion of your intestinal tract that's not seeing food is your remnant of your stomach and probably around 20 to 30 centimeters of duodenum and jejunum. However, your food is not seeing the secretions from your pancreas and your biliary tree right away. It's giving, getting more time. And as that happens, different things happen. So. This is where the interesting stuff comes with the bypass. This is where a lot of the, a lot of literature is still kind of determining exactly how does this bypass work. We know it causes restriction, but it also causes changes. And, and there's, there's a lot of neurohormonal changes that we're seeing happen with the gastric bypass where there's shifts in different neurohormones, especially neurohormones that drive weight and neurohormones that drive type 2 diabetes. Um, important ones are things such as cholecystokinin, uh, ghrelin, and cretin, and all these hormones uh, start uh, start changing and, and varying. And, and by doing these sort of things, we find that these these neurohormones diminish. And by diminishing these things, patients notice weight loss as well as improvement in comorbidities. And so when we talk about numbers, um, with the gastric bypass, people are now pushing much higher weight loss because you have this dual restrictive effect and neurohormonal effect and so patients are pushing around 70 to almost 80% excess weight loss and much more stable and much less variable because you've got this kind of dual effect happening. So that's the gastric bypass. And finally, um, the biliopancreatic diversion duodenal switch. So I'll just temper the fact that this operation isn't performed very commonly. When we look, you know, nationally, it probably represents probably 0.5 to 1% of all operations being done. It's, it's quite a complex operation, but... You know, in general terms, what this operation is, is it's a combination of 
a gastric sleeve. So we, we do a sleeve gastrectomy on the stomach to make it smaller. And then we essentially create a malabsorptive operation. So the bypass isn't necessarily a malabsorptive operation. This is a malabsorptive operation. So for this operation, we essentially join a loop of usually distal small bowel to the stomach, and then we reanastomose that to uh, ileum. So it, it causes a, a large malabsorption in your small bowel. So in this operation, most of your small bowel, from your duodenum to a large portion of your jejunum, is not seeing food. And the only portion of your bowel that's seeing food is that sleeve portion of the stomach, probably around 50 centimeters of, of distal jejunum and ileum, and then over to your colon. So really a really high malabsorptive operation. And it's this malabsorption that causes the weight loss. And the weight loss with this operation is really high. Patients can get around 90% excess weight loss, very, very high. But it comes with some consequences because people are also experience a lot of malabsorption. So people usually have to be on a lot of multivitamins, a lot of minerals, and they have to be very careful with these patients because they can be really malabsorptive after this operation. And it's because of that this operation hasn't really been adopted uh, nationally or internationally as, as the, the, the most commonest operation that we do. That was an awesome overview of uh, the operations, and uh, that was excellent. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the pathway is for patients in your hospital. So they, they come in for their, let's say, their bypass. Um, what do you do in terms of their swallow? When do they get discharged? And what kind of uh, medications and things like that do you put them on post-op? Sure. So post-operative care? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So they're... they're so there's different, you know, I'll focus on the bypass and the sleeve as, as the two key operations. I'll tell you kind of what we do and in and, and, and general what, what the outcome is. So with both operations, we do both operations laparoscopically. Um, in our center, we admit, uh, admit all patients uh, after the operation for usually a period of 24 to 48 hours. In terms of imaging after the operations, there's debate about the utility of upper GI series uh, post-operative day one to, to assess anastomoses or, test, or assess the sleeve. Really, there's no good evidence to indicate that these studies are useful. So, you know, I, I don't think they're necessary as a post-operative tool. Some surgeons do like to use them just for, um, for their own safe, uh, safety or sake, but there's no good evidence that an upper GI series is needed uh, post-operation to rule out a leak. We do a lot of intraoperative testing. We that that's been proven. So we intraoperatively um, use endoscopy to assess anastomoses uh, with saline and methylene blue dye. And as long as those are normal, the chance of of leak is usually diminished quite substantially. So after the operation, uh, the patients are usually admitted to the floor, and uh, plus or minus a fluoro post-op day one. And thereafter, uh, they're usually started immediately on a progressive diet from um, clear fluids to a bariatric full fluid diet and then over to discharge. So most patients are discharged either post-operative day one or post-operative day two. Um, we usually really try to maintain patients to be up and about and moving, so we tend not to keep it on bed rest. We don't use Foley catheters. Uh, we take, take off any compression uh, garments after the operation and really get them moving. In terms of post-operative medications, there's a couple key ones that we put patients on uh, which is similar for both operations. We put uh, gastric bypass and gastric sleeve patients on Pantaloc 
and we put them on a dose of um, about uh, uh, 20 milligrams uh, BID or sometimes 40 milligrams BID for a period of six months. And the reason we do that is to prevent the formation of marginal ulcers. There, there's been evidence shows that there's a higher risk of marginal ulcers, especially after a gastric bypass operation, and marginal ulcers can cause problems. So we leave patients on Pantalock for six months after the operation. The other medication we have started to put patients on also is Ursa or Actigal or Ursa deoxycholic acid for patients who haven't had previous cholecystectomies because uh, we know that rap with rapid weight loss comes increased risk of gallstone formation and we really don't want our patients to have symptomatic gallbladder disease after having, um, you know, a gastric bypass or a gastric sleeve. So patients also uh, go on uh, Ursa or Actigal if they haven't had a cholecystectomy for a period of six months. And finally, we just uh, place patients on, on regular pain uh, medication, uh, not too much. We usually give them either a codeine elixir um, for about seven days or a Tylenol elixir strength for seven days. We really discourage the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs because those can predispose to ulceration and gastritis. Uh, so we, we don't uh, promote the usage of NSAIDs post-surgery. Um, how about heparin? Are you um, sending people home on heparin? Uh, we're not. No, we're not sending people home on heparin. We do obviously use heparin um, post-operatively um, in, the, in the usual post-op surgical period, but we don't send patients home on injections of enoxaparin um, currently. Okay, awesome. Um, something that seems to come up on exams a lot is talking about a variety of kind of uh, bariatric complications. Um, and I, and I, I thought we could sort of look at this from an early or a late um, type of phase. So, yeah. um, um, you know, you get, let's say you have a, a patient, bariatric patient who's post-op day one, their hemoglobin is dropped or their tachycardic, and you think they might be bleeding. How do you kind of approach that? Yeah, so I mean, I think just at the outset, you know, I think as we as we look at, you know, rural college exams or, or, or exams in the U.S., we're seeing more and more bariatric um, complication questions being more evident because it's, it's, it's a real deal. Like I told you, the amount of individuals who are obese and the amount of, and the more and more bariatric surgery they were performing, even if you don't do bariatric surgery yourself or you don't believe in it, you're going to see a patient who's at least had bariatric surgery in your hospital or out in the community. So um, when we look at complications, like you said, I mean, it's good to focus initially on the, we'll focus on the post-operative complications first, and then we can look at, you know, patients who are discharged. So post-operative complications, the commonest ones we see, somebody who's had, for instance, a gastric bypass or a gastric sleeve, so is Number one would be hemorrhage, right? So hemorrhage, you know, obviously it, it's a condition that can happen after, you know, either of these two, those two operations. Some people put a Jackson Pratt drains in, which can be, you know, uh, you know, a monitor. It obviously won't prevent a hemorrhage, but if you see, obviously, a Jackson Pratt drain filling with blood, then that's always an indication to be worried about. So uh, when we look at bleeds, uh, an easy way for me to understand or classify it or figure out how to deal with it is, First of all, determine whether this is an intra-abdominal bleed or an intraluminal bleed, right? So, for instance, if you have somebody who's had a bariatric operation and they're convalescing on the floor and suddenly you notice that, hey, um, their hemoglobin is dropped, 
or they're they're experiencing some signs, obviously you assess the patient and determine, okay, now what's going on? Is this there's there should be there's probably a bleed going on somewhere because I'm not sure why the hemoglobin has dropped. The first thing is obviously check the patient parameters. I mean if they're hemodynamically labile, like they're hypotensive or tachycardic, especially tachycardic, then obviously that's that's measurement you know that's that's significantly concerning. So obviously start your resuscitation effort efforts start fluid, start blood as needed, and then get to the idea of figuring out, you know, where this is coming from, what I need to do. If I have somebody who's hemodynamically labile or unstable or tachycardic and I'm, I'm worried about a, a post-operative bleed, uh, then usually my next step is taking that patient back to the OR for usually a combination of things, usually a combination of a diagnostic laparoscopy, plus or minus an intraoperative gastroscopy. If they're, if they're tachycardic and you're worried about a bleed, especially after a bariatric operation, our, our threshold is pretty low to take them back to have a look on the inside and have a look on the outside. So that's the first thing. If they're hemodynamically stable, and then you say, okay, you know what, they're hemodynamically stable, post-operative day one, suddenly well, why is the hemoglobin level dropped down from, you know, 120 to 90 or 80, and, but they're stable. So this is, this is now where you get into the investigation of, okay, is this intra-abdominal or is this intra-luminal? Because that, that can change what you do. Um, and that you know, this is where sometimes a drain can help you if you have a drain in, and you know there's no blood in the drain at all. Then maybe you're thinking intraluminal, or if, if the the drain is full of blood, you're like, hey, this is intraluminal bleed. If you don't have a drain in, then obviously you have to do a bit more history taking and figure out what's going on. You know, is the patient experiencing? You know, if you have an intraabdominal bleed, I expect at least some sort of uh, discharge from some of the ports uh, with some blood or some some skin changes may indicate an intraabdominal bleed or maybe some uh, tenderness. If they have an intraluminal bleed, again, they manif may manifest with, you know, hematemesis or even melina. So this can kind of lead you to your next steps. If it's an intraluminal bleed, we usually try to, you know, settle it down as much as we can with um, reversal of any uh, anticoagulant medications, plus or minus potentially uh, uh, adding, adding, in, um, adding in blood products as needed. And and if not, then switching to you know endoscopy to to manage it. If it's an intraabdominal bleed, then again it depends on you know where where we're sitting in terms of the patient. If the patient is obviously in a lot of distress and discomfort. Then sometimes the best thing to do is take them back laparoscopically and evacuate the hematoma. If they're fairly reasonable, usually these hematomas will resolve and we'll leave them alone. So again, managing an intra Hemorrhage is similar to polyhemorrhage after any operation, but just understanding whether you think it's intraluminal or intraabdominal. Awesome, and and then I think the the other big one, obviously, that we we worried about in the early postoperative phase is a leak. Yeah, so leak is probably the big one that you're probably going to hear about, and and leaks are always hard. And the problem with leaks is that um, the the take home message for any resident or fellow or community surgeon is, if you think they even have a leak or you're worried about a leak, take them back to the OR. That's that's the end message. But in the end, you know, how do you how do you what what ideas would lead you to think about that? So the main thing we look at with leaks uh, for patients is obviously you don't want to wait till they're manifesting signs of sepsis. So using corollary markers like a fever, an elevated white blood cell count, abdominal tenderness, peritonitis, usually too late. So we don't tend to use that as a caveat. And interestingly, 
the, the main caveat we use is actually heart rate, which is very interesting because studies have looked at different parameters for leak and, and what parameter is the most consistent in terms of potentially diagnosing a leak. And what they've shown is that patients have had especially a gastric bypass. If somebody's had a gastric bypass and postoperatively there's a run of sustained tachycardia of a heart rate of over 120, which is sustained for a period of two to three measurements or one to two hours, a sustained tachycardia of over 120, there's a high, higher than normal likelihood that something has gone on like a potential leak in, in the abdominal cavity. Now, that tachycardia could be from bleeding, so you have to obviously sort that out. But I think if you've seen a patient, or if I, my fellow comes to me and said, hey, listen, we did a gastric bypass on this lady at around 2 p.m. I'm seeing her at 10 p.m. She's had this kind of sustained tachycardia after the operation. What should we do next? You know, should we, you know, do an upper GI? Should we do a CT scan? Should I watch her for a couple hours? Her physical exam is pretty unremarkable. The answer to that question is take her back to the OR for a diagnostic laparoscopy period, and stop, that's the answer. So that is what needs to be done, and the reason it needs to be done is that because patients who have bariatric surgery are severely obese, they can really mask symptoms of sepsis. So to wait for a patient to get abdominal pain, you may have missed that window, and they can, you know, circle down the drain proverbially pretty quickly, right? And it's very hard to catch up. And taking them to, our, to an OR for a diagnostic laparoscopy is very quick, you have a look. If there's no leak, then you're good. If there's a leak, you can put a stitch in. There's not too much contamination, and you can move on. So, you know, we have that as our protocol. If if somebody has a sustained tachycardia of over 120 on repeat measurements, then the next call is to the fellow and to the staff surgeon, and usually we're back in the OR having a look. Let's talk about that operative approach. Let, let's say you're in the operating room um, and you see a leak. I guess the, the places that you could see a leak where it would be you know, off the st- off the staple line, off the anastomosis, etc. Is is there anything that you would do differently depending on where the leak came from? Yeah, I mean, the commonest if you have a leak, the commonest point of a leak for a gastric bypass is usually at the gastrojejunal anastomosis. That's usually the commonest place that you'll you'll see the leak, and that's where the leak happens. Usually, right at the anastomosis. So. Again, it depends on on when you're seeing it and how much contamination there is. So obviously, this is all intraoperative decision-making. So if you get in there and there's not too, too much contamination, again, we, we, we liberally use endoscopy quite a bit. So you put an endoscope in, have a look. If you see a little bubble coming in, then what we tend to do is essentially try to stitch uh, stitch the leak point up. So we'll do uh, intracorporeal suturing, uh, suture the leak up, so uh, close the hole back up. After that, then it depends on surgeons. Some surgeons say, okay, I've got the leak sutured up, and then a lot of them will place a piece of momentum, almost like a gram patch over that sealed leak area, so just to, to buttress it. And thereafter, obviously, drain the area quite well, so most people will put a couple of Jackson Pratt drains um, around the area. The last thing is if I, if I see a leak, and usually most of my colleagues, if we see a leak at the gastrogenal anastomosis, you want to have this area healing, and you want to be able to feed the patient. So most of us... If we're seeing a leak and we manage a leak with a suture or a buttress, we'll usually liberally place a gastrostomy tube into the gastric remnant. And by placing it into the gastric remnant, it allows, allows a source of feeding, right? Because by accessing the gastric remnant, you can now feed the patient to the gastric remnant, and that feed will go you know, down the duodenum, 
passage yejinojejinosmi into the common channel and into the rest of the small bowel. So you can actually let that anastomosis, you know, heal, not put any food through it, feed the patient and, and give it time. So most of us, if you get in there for a leak, will either suture the hole closed, put a patch over top of it, drain widely, and then do a gastroscopy tube. And that's usually the, the main principles of managing a leak. Um, if you get in there and there's a huge hole and you can't suture it back together, obviously it's, it's, it's hard to manage. So at that point, usually we go into a bit of a damage control situation where we try to you know, cover at least the hole with a piece of momentum, wide drainage, do the gastrostomy tube, and, and leave alone. Again, like, like most leaks, it should heal. Let it decompress, um, put a gastrostomy tube, feed the patient, and then move on. Gotcha. Because um, usually the leak will not be at the jejunojejunostomy because that's a small bowel, small bowel anastomosis. Yeah, very uncommonly to be at the jejunojejunostomy. Obviously, it's not impossible. Um, most commonly, it's the gastrojej, but if we get in there and the, and the gastrojej looks okay, obviously, we always check both anastomoses. So we'll, we'll, you know, obviously we'll check the, the, the JJ. If it's there, then usually same kind of ideas. We'll suture it, uh, suture it up. So for an early leak, do you ever consider doing things like stenting or d does that ever come into your management or it's always going back to the operating room? No, for an early leak, always back to the operating room. I think that's a good segue to talk about maybe perhaps some of the, the let's say the, the discharged patient who now comes back in with some issues um, and maybe we could st we could stay with the leak. Um, let's yeah. say someone, like I actually saw someone recently who came back two weeks post-bypass um, with kind of just malaise and a fever and got a CT scan done by the emergency department uh, which showed an abscess in the left upper quadrant. Um, how would yeah. you sort of deal with that situation? Yeah, so late leaks are the other big issue. So late leaks, again, I, I think the best way to understand this is let's separate the operations to a gastric bypass and a gastric sleeve. And I didn't really talk about leak, an, an early leak after a gastric sleeve. That's it's quite uncommon, but again, if that happens, and yes, somebody who has a gastric sleeve who has an early leak, same kind of principle, taken back to the OR, find the leak point using the sleeve. It's usually in the sleeve staple line. You know, over-sew it, put a drain uh, right next to it, and consider distal feeding access. For that, there's no gastric remnant, so usually a feeding tube into the jejunum somewhere. So that's just to get that out of the way. So now, late, late, late leaks. So late leaks is somebody who's, let's say, been discharged home and comes back to the hospital. So same kind of principle. Let's just deal with the bypass first. So if you have a, somebody that's a gastric bypass, comes back in, and you know, you're worried about a leak again, depends on the stability of the patient. Um, if they're unstable, signs of sepsis, you know, are looking unwell, then take them back to the OR um, and see what's going on, okay? So you have to get in there, drain the, 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 the surgical goals are obviously drain the contamination. So if there's a leak, you know, try to suck out all the uh, enteric contents, clean it out, wash it out, try to figure out where the leak is coming from. If you're, if you're in the OR and they're unstable, usually at this point at two to three weeks, it's usually quite, uh, quite hard to, to suture anything back up because the tissue is probably quite, uh, quite friable. So it may come to a point of just draining, trying to patch what you can and get feeding access, right? Um, most of those, most of the times, though, these late leaks are stable, kind of like your patients, where they come in, they kind of look unwell, but they're not hemodynamically unstable, maybe a bit of a fear, maybe a bit of a white count. And then you do some imaging or you do some x-rays and you say, hey, there's a, there's a bit of a collection going on. So how do you manage those? So the main management for those is, again, same kind of idea. You want to deal with the deal with the infected collection. So if there's an abscess, drain the abscess. Get some sort of feeding access if you can. 
obviously it can be kind of hard, um, but uh, a lot of times we can get our interventional colleagues to put a uh, CT-guided or ultrasound-guided gastrostomy tube into the gastric remnant. And as soon as you've got that done, you've got time on your side. So you drain the, you drain the access, drain the collection, and you start feeding access, and then you're good. Then the point is, you know, how does this leak heal? And usually after a gastric bypass leak, as long as it's drained, controlled, you feed distally, usually tincture of time will allow that leak to heal. If it doesn't heal, then uh, usually we tend to use more uh, interventional endoscopy techniques to facilitate the leak healing, and this, those can be things such as intraluminal suturing, uh, sometimes clips, sometimes using um, adjuncts like uh, in, uh, internal drains or, or intraluminal uh, injection of, uh, uh, of um, uh, sealing agents, or in some situations, putting a stent across that, uh, that anastomosis. We're, 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 we're kind of worried sometimes about stenting across gastric bypass anastomosis because the problem with the stents there is that it's such a small area, and with, with stents, there's just risks of stent migration. So we will stent bypass leaks, but that's usually lower in our algorithm in terms of managing them. In terms of sleeve leaks, though, totally different. So with the sleeve leaks, the same kind of idea. If you have somebody who has a sleeve that comes with a leak, if they're unstable, don't look good, then again, take them to the OR, wash out the contamination. At that point, what do you do? So for sleeve leaks, stents are a great option for late sleeve leaks. They, it works really, really well. And the reason it works well is not necessarily that the stent seals a leak, but it seals a problem with the pressure in that remnant stomach. Because a lot of patients who have sleeve leaks, the issue is there's this issue with high pressure because with a sleeve, you're making the stomach much smaller. And as we know, with uh, Puiseal's law, as you decrease your your uh, radius and your diameter, your pressure increases, right, exponentially. So with a stent, what it allows your stomach to do is it decreases the pressure in your stomach and allows the flow to go up into your esophagus or down to your duodenum. And by decreasing the pressure, allows that area to heal. And most sleeve leaks won't heal without that pressure uh, diversion. So with sleeve leaks, stents are kind of the number one thing we do. So intraoperatively, if it's there for somebody who's unstable, we drain the collection, and then we put a stent in. For somebody who's stable with a sleeve leak, same kind of idea. We'll drain the collection usually non-operatively with a CT or an ultrasound, and then send them for stenting to seal that area or more like, or sorry, more importantly, decrease the pressure in the area to allow that area of sleeve leak to heal up. And most of them, interesting enough, heal up um, after a period of stenting. That's awesome. So, so stents are friends for sleeves, and then uh, there's kind of lower down in your algorithm for, for bypass leaks. Correct. Okay, awesome. And then I think the other huge um, topic is the bypass patient who comes back with an obstruction. So probably the biggest question that you'll probably, you know, residents or community surgeons will get is, is this kind of idea of, of, of somebody who has a gastric bypass and uh, come to the emergency room with, uh, you know, especially a laparoscopic gastric bypass, and come to the emergency room with signs and symptoms of intermittent abdominal pain, and then is kind of feeling bloated, and there's there's worry about uh, an obstruction, whether it's abdominal distension or they do um, three Vs of the abdomen, and there's dilated loops of small bowel. So you know what's going on, what's what's the next step. So the major concern, and this is, again, one of those big, big areas of bariatric surgery is, is the idea of internal hernias, right? And, and an internal hernia, in essence, is 
where you get uh, a loop of small bowel going to an area where it's not supposed to happen. And with a gastric bypass, there's usually three areas where internal hernias can happen. The first area, and the commonest area we see currently, is is a is an intermesenteric internal hernia, and this happens at the jejunojejunostomy because we're creating a a jejunojejunostomy, and there's a there's an area of a, a mesentery between the two areas of jejunum that we have to oversew, and sometimes that opening can weaken up, and you can get a loop of small bowel that pops through that opening. So that's an intermesenteric hernia there. Second hernia is is called a Peterson's hernia, and that happens when when we do an anticolic which is the commonest one, an anticholic gastrogenostomy. So there's always this area in the lateral aspect of the anticholic loop between the anticholic loop and the transverse mesocolon where there's a little bit of an area there called Peterson space, and you can get a loop of small, loops of small bowel that can pop through that area. And the final one is a uh, transmesocolic hernia, which happens if people do a retrocolic um, anastomosis and make a hole in the transverse colon mesentery, and you get a loop of small, super small bowel sneaking through there. So the issue with these internal hernias, obviously, you get hurt to get bowel that goes into these spaces, and and you know if this bowel gets caught and it dies off, you've got a big problem because you've already bypassed sections of small bowel, and losing small bowel and something that's already been bypassed is a major issue. So for any patient who has a gastric bypass that presents with the signs of you know intermittent abdominal pain, they usually say, yeah, you know, I've had some pain off and on, off and on, and now I've got this more pain, and and now I've got some bloating and distension. The key thing to do with this, this patient, the next step is back to the operating room. So there's always questions, hey, you know, should I confirm this hernia with a CT scan and or do an upper GI series? And the answer is no. A CT scan is a useful test. You know, if you do a CT scan on somebody and, and you see signs of, you know, twirl, uh, swirling of the mesentery and a large predominance of small bowel on the left upper quadrant, well, that's great. That's internally going to take them out to the operating room. The problem with it is that the sensitivity of a CT scan for an internal hernia is around 80%. So it's about 20% of patients that you will miss uh, with a CT scan because the CT scan may not pick it up. And if you miss it and you leave the patient and they go on to infarct that small bowel, that's going to be a major issue and a life-changing or life-threatening issue. So anybody who has any signs and symptoms of an internal hernia based on physical examination or index of suspicion, you take them back to the operating room. There's no there's no role for any tests, whether it's a CT scan or an upper GI series, take them back to the operating room to manage it. Once you're in the operating room, what's your approach? Because I've found uh, that this can be quite confusing once you're in there. It's hard to tell what's what. Yeah, so the main thing, you know, I, I, funny, I did internal hernia for non-bariatric patients. The, the key thing is where to start because you go in there and you're like, hey, this, this looks like the surgeon just hooked this up backwards. I can't figure out what's going on. So the key starting point I tell any surgeon, you know, we have our own general surgeons to take back internal hernias if we're not around. The key starting point is starting distally. Start at the terminal ileum because that's consistent. You know that's always going to be there. You haven't done anything with a gastric bypass to alter the anatomy of the cecum or the distal small bowel. So what you do is you start there, and by starting there, what you do is you start just running the bowel from distal to proximal. So you start kind of pulling that bowel and start running it. And what you start finding is as you start running the bowel, you'll start finding that you'll start reducing stuff. And as you start reducing stuff, you'll come to the point of obstruction. As you reduce stuff, you'll kind of start reducing the small bowel from the TI to the ileum to the jejunum, and you'll come up to an area. The first area you'll come up to is the 
like I said, the intermesenteric defect of the jejunogejunostomy. So if you're reducing bowel and you come to that point and you're like, hey, there's no bowel in there, then you keep going. And as you keep going, you're going to turn the corner and you're going to start reducing bowel and then you come to the next defect, which is the Peterson's defect, where the, where the rulum goes up. And you can see, is there any hernia there? You look, there's nothing there, then you're done. And if they've had a transmesocolic or a retrocolic anastomosis, the last area you're going to run into is that area where the rulum goes uh, goes below the transverse musical, and, you, and that's your last place to look. So the key teaching point is start distally at the terminal ileum and run distal to proximal, and you'll always find the defect. And when you find a defect, if there is an internal hernia, then you, you close it up with permanent suture. That's the, that's the take-home message. And hopefully you're there before there's any infarcted bowel. On one, one last technical point on this, when you're doing your initial bypass, are you closing uh, Peterson's? Um, so, uh, depends on, on surgeons. So, um, interestingly, I don't usually close Peterson's defect. My colleagues do. Gotcha. Yeah. I think the the guys here are the same. They close the jejunogejunostomy, uh, but they don't close Peterson's. Yeah. And the reason for that, I mean, it just, the reason for that is that when you're closing Peterson's, you have to be very careful about making sure you do a complete closure of that lateral defect because what we see in terms of publications for Peterson's defects is that there's actually sometimes more hernias if you if you close Peterson's not improperly, right? So, you you know, you're making a big defect into a small defect, and that's where the problems come about, right? So, I haven't uh, normally closed Peterson's, but that might be debated, and people on the podcast might um, challenge me to that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was absolutely fantastic, and, and thank you for that master class in bariatrics. Uh, you know, we, we certainly need refreshers really at every every level, no matter if we're super specialists or or not. Um, you know, it's interesting in, in my HPV job, we were just lucky enough to be in Calgary part of a um a four country multinational, twenty eight multi center study. It was retrospective, but it looked at patients that had previously undergone in particular rule and wide gastric bypass and then needed subsequent whipples. And it was a good reminder, you know, number one that these patients can get other diseases and will get other diseases as they go on through life. But number two, the, the results of that study that's out in JOGS, um, Journal of Gastrointestinal Surgery, was really interesting because no single center had very much experience with it. You know, the, the busiest centers were three or four patients over many years. Um, and then also the, the reconstructive um, options were clearly very broad and the, and the selections were, were almost as broad. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? So interestingly, that, that's how you was very interesting, and, and it, it's actually changed bariatric surgeons, actually, that, that's how you chat. And the reason is this idea of the biliopancreatic limb, right? And previously, you know, obviously the biliopancreatic limb where the, you know, where the, the turn of the duodenum happens and, and the distance between, you know, you know, where the distance of the biliopancreatic limb to the common channel, previously surgeons were making that pretty short, right? So right from, um, you know, ligament of trites to, um, to the jejunogejunostomy, surgeons were keeping it pretty short around like, you know, 5, 10, maybe 15 centimeters. And obviously yeah, that, sure. that makes it technically difficult for you because if you go in there for a Whipple's and I've only left you 10 to 15 centimeters and then you have a JJ, it'll make yeah. it pretty hard for you to get that resection done. So interesting enough, uh, and for both reasons, people are finding that we're actually lengthening that biliopancreatic limb, both for that idea that if there's something else to be done, it gives you more opportunity to do it, and we've also found that actually biliopancreatic limb length, a longer biliopancreatic limb length, actually affords better weight loss. 
So people are lengthening their biliopancreatic limb to now, you know, we usually go, I usually go around 40 to 50 centimeters, and some groups has gone up to about 100 centimeters and actually decreasing their rule limb length. So very fascinating idea. And like I said, you know, bariatric surgery is just changing, and, and we're, we're, we're very adaptable to understanding that, you know what, there's no need to keep it as short because it may affect, you know, non-bariatic surgery in the future, and by making it longer, it, it, it helps both of us. So it's a very interesting article, and it's changed practice, right? Oh, that's fascinating. Well, on behalf of all HPV surgeons and internationally, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> the, the other really interesting um, uh, paper that, that you wrote in the Canadian Journal of Surgery and, and elsewhere, quite honestly, in, in a few different formats, was the idea of idiopathic intracranial hypertension in these morbidly obese patients and that bariatric surgery uh, is likely a, a treatment for a lot of that as well. Can you comment on that for us? Yeah, so I mean, uh, intracranial hypertension or benign inter intracranial hypertension, you know, the, the other name for it is obviously pseudotumor cerebri. And we know that it's, it's a condition when you look at like kind of the, um, the demographics of it, it typically uh, affects young, overweight females, right? And we know that um, when, when they manage patients who have intracranial hypertension, when I talk to my neurosurgery colleagues, the standard of care for patients actually, you know, obviously acetazolamide to decrease the pressure, but also weight loss. So they said, you know, let's use this, you know, fluid reduction uh, technology as well as weight loss. And, and they found that, interestingly, when, um, when patients lost weight, their pseudotumor cerebri symptoms improved. Uh, the issue with just, you know, regular weight loss going on diet and exercise is like, like all patients who have severe obesity, it's hard to maintain that long term. And what tends to happen is that, that the, the amount of weight loss that's needed to really improve ICH is about a 10% overall excess weight loss. It's very hard to decrease, uh, establish with just dietary therapy. So what's gone on is that, hey, let's, you know, what about bariatric surgery as a, as a tool to just help with weight loss, but also maybe improve the symptom long term? And so... What we did is we studied, you know, what effect would bariatric surgery have on intracranial hypertension? And what we found, fascinatingly, and, and that's kind of intuitively, is that patients who suffer from uh, intracranial hypertension after bariatric surgery find relief of their symptoms and, more than that, almost complete resolution of their, their condition. So it's almost like a cure we're getting for a non bariatric condition, non-gastrointestinal tract condition. We're getting cure of this intracranial hypertension, which is, which is fascinating. We've had, you know, we've had patients who've had, oh, I think, you know, we know with pseudotumor cerebri, patients can have significant visual disturbances. And we had patients who were, you know, at the point of uh, not being able to see at all. And the concern was, you know, these people are, are never going to get their sight back. And after, you know, bariatric surgery and, and weight loss, you know, their ICH improved as did their visual disturbances, which were initially thought to be irreversible. So a very fascinating, again, an area that that's why, you know, the idea of, of really researching and, and publishing things get, gets, gets new ideas uh, developed and understood. Yeah, yeah I, could, I couldn't agree more, Shaz. I mean, those are two perfect examples of, you know, the interrelationship between multiple different subspecialties and specialties, quite honestly, and uh, it's so important. Let, let's just finish on that note then. And I, I wanted to ask you specifically what your views are on sort of the, you know, the pyramid uh, relationship between industry, 
um, you know, advanced MIS training and the concept of innovation. And uh, again, Scott Gamora and, and Amir and I had an interesting conversation about that sort of uh, con- concept superficially. But you guys in Edmonton are known to be um, uh, really linked to all three of those. So I was curious what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, you know, I get, you know, with industry, there's always this concern about conflict of interest and, you know, having industry uh, involved and, and being too involved in, in what we do. And, and I, I think the other tack for it, because, I mean, we all work together and we all have a common goal. That, you know, you have to understand, obviously, industry is there for business, but they also have an idea that, by promoting good health, it'll improve what they do and what they offer. So we have we have a very, you know, I say a symbiotic relationship with industry, and when we we work together, we realize that by working together and, and sharing our ideas and thoughts and and supports, we can we can work at you know improving or, or, or improving care to our patients. So that's kind of our take on it. And you know, we work in although you know industry is involved in supporting our research, they by no means uh, drive what we do or drive what we publish. A lot of the grants we get are obviously unrestricted educational grants. They put certain amounts of funds for grants that we can do what they want, what we want to do with them, whether the results are positive or negative, whether the results are related to their product or not. It, it's just kind of the idea of, of promoting uh, a good relationship between businesses with a common goal. And, and that's kind of the understanding. And that's, you know, that's also based on you know, the ethics of research and, and being involved in a big center like yours and ours where, you know, there, there's a stringent um, ethics process, there's a stringent process of looking at, you know, what we do and, and really having defined conflicts of interest. You know, if I publish something that's industry funded, then I, I'll, I'll, I'll state it and explain what it is. So I think that's that's very, very important. And, and that ties into innovation too because, you know, in and the ability to innovate and grow and develop, you need that support because you need support from a big business that can help with, you know, fostering innovation and putting forward ideas or putting forward new ideas or new products and, and help develop the, the, the next stages. And just by, if you just shut them out, I mean, it's very hard, uh, especially within Canada, to, to, to get the funding capability or the contacts to, Really innovate and develop. Um, so that's that's kind of my, my my idea. I think the idea of a symbiotic relationship is is the most most integral, and just understanding conflicts and and having them out to people so they understand where you're at, and there's nothing kind of hidden uh, hidden behind the rug or behind the curtain. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.